on staff here. Uh, and I'm glad, especially if you're visiting with us, but even if you've been here a long time, we're really glad that you're here to worship with us. This is an exciting day for our church, uh, particularly with nine baptisms and some new members. It's, it's, just, it's just a fun thing to participate in as a, as a body of believers. And we are seeking each, t- each week as we open up the scriptures and study God's word to not only learn what the Bible says, but also to put it into practice in our lives. And my, my hope as I spend some time with you in the scriptures this morning is to enable you better to do that. To First of all, understand what does the Bible say? And then number two, to put it into practice in your, in your life, to bring it down to, okay, this is what I need to do then in response to what God says. Uh, and by way of introduction to our passage today, I want to reference one of my favorite movies of all time, The Princess Bride. Any of you seen it? All right. It's a great story. There's fencing, fighting, torture, true love. I mean, the whole works, right? Uh, it's, it's got everything you could possibly want. Giants. I mean, it's, it's got good stuff. Um, and if you're not familiar with the story... The story is the uh, true love story of Wesley, a poor farm boy, and his true love, Buttercup, right? And uh, Wesley, is, since he's a poor farm boy, goes off into the wide world to seek his fortune uh, to, uh, so that he can marry Buttercup. And along the way, he is captured by pirates and presumed dead. And, uh, some years later, uh, Wesley makes his return uh, in a little bit incognito, wearing a mask, and uh, to find that Buttercup is already betrothed to the uh, evil Prince Humperdinck, right? Uh, but nonetheless, he rescues her from Humperdinck's men who are going to kill her to touch off a war with the neighboring country. And uh, they escape, they make their way through the fire swamp with its uh, flame spurt. Uh, the lightning sand and the rodents of unusual size, right? Only to be captured on the other side of this swamp by the king's men, and Wesley is taken to the pit of despair and killed on a torture device, which would, you would think kind of puts a damper on the true love thing, right? Uh, they don't exactly go riding off into the sunset. Well, at least not yet. Um, at just the right moment, Wesley is found by his friends, Fezig the giant and, um, and Inigo the drunken Spaniard, and they go off uh, to see Miracle Max to get a chocolate-coated miracle pill, which will bring Wesley back to life, right? And it's a great scene. It's a funny scene. Uh, uh, Billy Crystal plays Miracle Max. Uh, and uh, they lay Wesley out on the table, and they're like, we need a miracle. And he's like, what can you do for us? He's dead. And he's like, as a matter of fact, your friend is only mostly dead. And there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. And they're like, really? He goes, yeah, with mostly dead, is still slightly alive. With all dead, there's only one thing left to do. What's that? Go through his pockets and look for loose change. Okay? <laughs> but they, they lay him out on the table. They blow air in his chest. And then Miracle Max squeezes on his chest and says, Hello in there. What's so important? What you got worth living for? And he squeezes his chest and out comes, True love. Right? Okay. And they, they, they give Wesley the miracle pill. They storm the castle. 
They, uh, they tie up the prince. They escape from all his henchmen. The drunken Spaniard gets his revenge. They ride off into the sunset on white horses. They kiss passionately. You know, it's a great, it's a great movie. It's hilarious on top of that, okay? Great way to spend a, a, a Sunday evening or a Saturday afternoon or whatever. Um, but my point in all of that is not just to recall to mind a funny movie, but to say that Paul's point is precisely an echo of Miracle Max's question. What is so important? What do you got worth living for? What do you got worth living for? And as you read your Bible here, um, Philippians chapter 1, beginning down in the last part of verse 18, where we left off last week, Paul says this, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Christ Jesus, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that, that I will in no way be ashamed but we'll have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had. And now here that I still have. Now, to read verses 18 to 26, which is the first section of this passage, is to ask another, uh, another question from a little more literary source. Uh, some of you may remember from high school or maybe college uh, the, the Shakespeare play Hamlet and the great soliloquy that, that Hamlet has as he's contemplating his outcome in life. He says, to be... Or not to be? That is the question, right? And it goes on from there. And that is Paul's debate that he's having. Which is better, life or death? And it's not an easy question for Paul to answer. Remember, he is on trial for his life. He has two possible outcomes. Either he will be acquitted and walk out of this Roman imprisonment, or he'll be convicted and he'll be executed. And knowing that these are the two possibilities, there's no life imprisonment without parole. There's no, you get 15 years in the slammer. It's either life or death. And Paul says, which, which is better? And it's not an easy question to answer. So if you remember last week, 
that one reason, Paul, Paul gave one reason why he could rejoice even while he's on, in prison. And that is, is that the gospel is continuing to go out, not just powerfully, but even more powerfully than when he was free. And he says, I'm going to rejoice in that. And he says, in fact, I'm going to continue to rejoice. And he gives another reason. He says, because through your prayers and the help given me by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. In other words, that their prayers uh, and the Holy Spirit's work are going to go together to accomplish Paul's deliverance. And the word deliverance, there's actually the word salvation. It's going to accomplish my salvation. And, and notice that Paul ties the two of them together. Our, our prayer and the Holy Spirit's work. Uh, you know, sometimes people ask, well, does it make any difference if we pray? Yes. Is God still going to accomplish his, his uh, plan and purpose and will whether or not we pray? Yes. But does it make any difference if we pray? Yes. How, do that, how does that resolve itself? I have no idea. <laughs> okay. It's one of the great mysteries of the scriptures. But Paul affirms that both are true, that God is at work and that, the, and that, the, and that God also responds to us when we pray. Um, and God has a plan for Paul, and he says that God is going to be glorified through my life because you prayed and because the Holy Spirit is at work. Uh, now, if you look at verse 20 here, he says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, imagine this. Imagine that you were on trial for your life and that you know that any day they could, they could call you out of the confinement that you're in and you go and stand before Caesar and you get however long you get and then there's going to be a ruling that every morning when you wake up, you know this could be the day that determines my fate, either in, to go into God's presence or to be set free. And he says, I want to be sure that I have sufficient courage. Because Paul has already been through a lot. If you read 2 Corinthians, I believe it's about chapter 11, he goes through the list of all the stuff that's happened to him. How many times he got beaten with sticks, how many times with lashes, how many times he got stoned, how many times... Um, and by the way, that's uh, thrown... That somebody threw rocks at him, okay? Um, not the more modern context. But... Um, uh, how many times he was shipwrecked, how many times he was exposed out in the weather, okay? How many times all these terrible things happened to him? And yet he says, in every case, I was always in the past courageous and always refused to back down and temporize my testimony. And the fact is, is that it would be very easy for Paul to do that. Because if he would just trim his sails to fit the wind just once, he would get out of jail almost certainly and go free. But Paul's chief concern is not life or death. It's honoring Christ. His chief concern is not life or death, but honoring Christ. And, and that's what he says here, that I want Christ as always to be exalted in my body 
He doesn't want to chicken out so he can be released, in other words. And, Paul, and the reason why is this. Paul, Paul's reasoning works like this. He says, look, Jesus lived and died and was raised for me. And out of gratitude and thankfulness toward Christ, I ought to live my life, be willing to lay down my life in the expectation that Jesus will raise me in, fo- in following the pattern Jesus laid down. If Jesus has laid his life down for me, then I ought to be willing to lay my life down for him because he's going to raise me just as Jesus was raised. And so I want to honor Christ. And if you read this passage closely, you'll understand that Paul has already given up his life. He's not dead yet. But he's already given his life up. He's already said, Jesus, my life is yours. Do with what you want, whether you preserve me or see me killed. One or the other doesn't matter as long as Jesus is exalted. And that attitude, that that willingness to say, no matter what happens to me, as long as Jesus is exalted, that is what really matters. That's what leads him to make his great statement, verse 21. This would be, by the way, I know, I know that all of you are too old for Awana, but this would be a good one for you to memorize. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. For, me, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What Paul means here in this is that Christ is life. And everything else is just details. Jesus Christ is life and everything else is just details. And we shape everything in our life. If we're following Paul's attitude here, we shape everything in our life in relationship to Christ being at the center of it. Imagine that you're an Olympic athlete. Now, Some of you might take more imagination than others, all right? Um, But imagine that you're an Olympic athlete. If you're an Olympic athlete, and if you, you know, you can always watch when the Olympics are on, they always give the backstory to someone's, you know, triumph. And what they show is the schedule and the way that everything in their life is determined by what they're trying to achieve, and so you'll watch a guy like Michael Phelps as an example, or uh, Carl Lewis, or whoever is, is the Olympic athlete du jour, and you will see that their diet is determined by the fact that they're an Olympic athlete, right? Are they eating pepperoni pizzas? Maybe, but not real often, okay? Are they eating uh, ding-dongs and Doritos? Maybe, but not real often. Why? Because their diet has been laid on the altar of Olympic glory. What about their schedule? If they have a job, they have chosen that job based on what will fit into the fact that they are an Olympic athlete and need time to time to train. And so if my job starts too early for me to be able to train, I got to get a different job. And if my job interferes with my training and travel schedule, I've got to do, a, do something else because being an Olympic athlete is more important than working at Home Depot or wherever. And I can't go out late at night carousing like I would if I were not an Olympic athlete. I've got to 
uh, get home by a reasonable hour and get plenty of sleep because I need to have all the energy that I can to be able to do my sport. And they live and die for the Olympics. And it's not just, you know, it's not just uh, Olympians, obviously, who do that. It's also businessmen sometimes or businesswomen who make their determination about what is going to be really important in their life. And they say, this is life and everything else is just details. And it doesn't matter if it's family or the weekend or whatever. If the business calls, we're going and we're making sure that they're successful. Why? Because... All of my identity and self-worth and so forth is tied up in that business. In fact, I heard a great story of a guy who used to be uh, an importer-exporter. And one of the chief import-export things that they had with their business was bananas. And one day the head of their company came to him and said, Son, you have been a great employee here and we'd like to move you up, but if you're going to really advance in this company, you're going to have to sell your soul for bananas. And the guy was a believer in Christ, and he took a step back, and he said, would you repeat that just a second? And he said, I said you're going to have to sell your soul for bananas. And he said, well, um, you may be CEO of this company, but you need to understand something very important. Jesus will have my soul but I'll be darned if I'm going to sell my soul for bananas. And he put in his resignation that day and joined the Navigators, this group of men and women based out of Colorado that share the gospel with Christ with people and help them grow in Christ. Why did he do that? Because to live is Christ, not bananas, not Olympic medals, not... um, advancement in my company not even my family as important as that is to live is christ to live is christ and paul's answer to miracle max's question remember what's so important what do you got worth living for paul's answer is this christ and him alone that's what i got And, you know, the great thing about living for Christ is this, that is to enter into a realm, as the old hymn goes, where it is joy unspeakable and full of glory. The half has never yet been told, right? And so to live is Christ and to die is gain. Either way this turns out, Paul says, I'm coming out ahead on this, either way. And Paul knows he isn't going to get to choose by the way that's going to be uh, according to God's plan whether he's going to be released or whether he's going to remain in prison but suppose he could choose he says he says if I'm to go on living in the body this will mean fruitful labor for me yet what shall I choose I don't know what should I pick if he gets released he knows he gets to go on ministering and to even minister among the Philippians again And he's looking forward to that and excited about that opportunity because ministry is exciting to participate in and to see other people grow and to win them to faith in Christ and to use your gifts. That's exciting. 
And it's a privilege and a joy to get to do. And so Paul says, this will mean fruitful labor for me if I get to do that. On the other hand, if I die and get beheaded, and you know, the pain of that only lasts a few minutes, but I get to go into the presence of the living God. And that's so much better. <laughs> it's going to be so much better. You know, I have to agonize for those few seconds as they're leading me uh, down, the, down the causeway to the chopping block, and then when they stretch me out, that's not going to be any fun, and if it takes more than one whack, that'll really be a bad deal. But right after they really succeed, right after they succeed, I open my eyes in the presence of Jesus. And notice Paul's attitude toward death. Number one, he doesn't talk about it as something fearful, even though it, I'm sure, has to be uh, more than clarifying uh, for you to be facing down death by beheading, which is eventually how Paul did go out, by the way. But he doesn't talk about, doesn't talk about it as something fearful. He refers to it as departing to be with Christ. For Paul, it's as simple as we're going to walk out this door, we're going to go out of this house and into a whole new world. I'm not, it's not something to be afraid of. I'm just departing to go be with Christ. And he, look, he sees that as something desirable, even if the means of getting there might not be our favorite. And the other thing is, the other thing I want you to notice about Paul's attitude here is this is that he doesn't just consider what he would like most he considers what would be best for the church and what would be best for other people besides him because if it comes down to remaining here on this life depending on how painful your circumstances are and all of us get to a point where our circumstances or our health are so bad that that even even we who are normally afraid of death say death and going into glory would be a whole lot better than what I'm currently experiencing. All of us eventually get there. And Paul is, is not just at that point. He is saying, look, I've got to weigh this out. What would be best? Would it be better to be released or better to die? And when he chooses, he decides to choose not just his desire, but what's best for the church. And when, so when we choose, even on something as serious as a life and death issue, we also, as believers in Christ, if we're going to live in a way that to live is Christ, need to make our decisions with reference not just to our own desires, but what would be best for the church. And I realize that in our modern kind of Western American culture, that is probably the most countercultural thing you have heard this week that you should make your decisions with reference to what would be best for other people and not just what would be best for you. But the Christian life is one in which you have to, and, and we're going to see this more next week, you have to consider our own interests, but also the interests of others if you're going to live it faithfully. And so we consider things like how we spend our money, how we spend our time, whether or not we take a job, uh, whether or not to get married. You don't believe me? Read 1 Corinthians 7. Okay? 
whether or not to get married. Uh, all of these life-altering decisions we consider not based on simply what we want, but on what would be best for the church. And not just our church, but the church as a whole. Because the church is not just made up of the people in this room, but of all the people, both living and dead, who place their faith in Jesus Christ in his death on the cross for their sin and his resurrection from the dead. And so you need to consider not just what is best for you, not just what is best for our local church, but what is best for the church as a whole. Can you serve God, as an example, more effectively as a single or as a married person? Can you serve God more effectively uh, with this job or that job? With this house or that house? Living in this place or that place? Where can you serve God most effectively? That is the decision. And that is a revolutionary way of looking at life. But Jesus calls us to be revolutionary in how we think and act and live. And we place the needs of others at the center of our decision-making and who we are. Okay? Um, verse 27, and this is a continuation of the same thought. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's awfully easy a lot of times, either because we get distracted or we get busy, or sometimes simply because we decide we're going to be disobedient in a particular area, to not allow God to do all the things he wants to do in and through and with us. And we believe the gospel, the message that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins in our place and was raised to new life. But we believe that that message is so uniquely and powerfully true that it ought to and should and does convert us and change us in how we live so that we not just profess to follow Jesus, but that we act like Jesus and actually follow Jesus in how we live and speak and think. And Paul says that we're to do this uh, for a couple of reasons. That, number one, standing firm in the gospel is a testimony to non-Christians. Now, you don't, uh, anymore in churches, you don't hear too much people talking about their witness or their testimony in the world or whatever. But it's a biblical concept that's important and true. That it does matter what other people think. That a non-Christian world is watching how you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, who profess faith in the, in the dying and rising Son of God. Conduct yourself out in the world. And your life is a testimony to them. That standing firm in it tells the story of the gospel with your life as well as with your mouth. And Paul uses here a military image. Um, he's chained probably to a member of the Praetorian Guard. And the Praetorian Guard were the elite of the Roman military. They were the special forces, the Green Berets, the Delta Force of the Roman military system. And their battle cry 
was to one another was stand firm. And if you understand Roman military tactics, you understood that, that Roman soldiers only had armor on the front of their bodies. They had armor across their chest, across their groin and hips, across their ankles, on their feet. They had a shield to cover their arms and a sword in the other hand. And the job of, of a praetorian guardsman was to take and hold the six square feet of ground around him, which is as long as he could reach with his arms plus his sword. Okay, And if everybody did that, then you stood firm and you marched in column and rank and you advanced and you never retreated. You either die on the field or you advance, but there was no retreat. And Paul carries that image into this text. He says... And he's probably looking at one of these guys because I think he's chained to one of them. He says, stand firm as one man contending for the gospel. And the word contending there is the idea of fighting side by side. In other words, like Roman soldiers in rank, shoulder to shoulder, going down the field. And it, it, it says in the NIV, as one man, but... In, in the Greek, it actually reads, with one mind. In other words, that we all think the same way, with the same objective, heading the same direction, going down fields shoulder to shoulder, for the gospel's sake. Why do we do that? Because standing firm for the gospel is a testimony to non-Christians. In other words, we don't temporize, we don't trim our sails on what the gospel is to fit the wind of our culture. We tell people, yes, you are a sinner. Yes, your sin separates God. Yes, if you continue to clench your fist toward God for the rest of your life, you will go to hell. But God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross for your sin, to die on your, in, your, in your place to take the penalty that you deserved so that you would not have to, go to die, have to die and go to hell, but that he could give you new life through the resurrection of Christ. That as Christ paid for your sin at the cross, so he gives you the promise of new life through his resurrection, that you too will be raised from the dead. And we stand firm on that message, and we don't back up. There's no retreat, only advance. And we do that as a testimony to non-Christians that they, as Paul says, are dying without Christ. But that we, even if we are killed, will go into glory in the presence of God. And the reason that we do that is because we want to win them more than anything else. We want them to experience the new life that is found in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, if you do that faithfully, by the way, you're going to have suffering. Uh, I know that's not, that may be the second most countercultural thing you've heard all week, okay? That the Christian life is not just about sweetness and joy and happiness and, and prospering materially. That there's also going to be suffering and joy in the midst of it. That suffering for the Christian is just as much a part of the Christian life as blessing. And in fact, Paul says, 
it, you know, my Bible reads, it has been granted to you to suffer. The word there, if you translate it literally, literally means it has been graced to you to suffer. In other words, that suffering is just as much a part of God's grace in a believer's life as his conversion, salvation, and glorification. And in that, that we can have joy, that that's God's grace too. Recognizing that our suffering is God's grace. Why? Because it stiffens our resolve to stand firm for the gospel. It enables us to imitate the life of Jesus Christ, who, if you remember, was born in humble circumstances. It doesn't get any worse, you know. I mean, most of our mothers say to us, if we are kind of sloppy, were you born in a barn? Jesus was born in a barn. To a, to a poor family, his reputation was ruined from the moment he was born. Aren't you the carpenter's kid? Kind of reading between the lines. He suffers worse than any man. He dies on the cross, buried in a borrowed tomb. And is glorified, Paul says, beyond and given a name that's above every name. That's next week. And we, as we suffer, imitate the pattern of Christ because God has not called us to a life of unending prosperity. I'm sorry if that's news, but he has not called us to that life. He has called us to a life of faithfulness and joy and some blessing, but also suffering, which is also God's grace. And so above all, as we close, we need to remember that our life is Christ. That everything else is just details. And even to die for the sake of Christ while being faithful to him is gain. And so we need to hold on to Christ tightly and everything else lightly. Because this world in its present form is passing away. And let our life be a testimony to those around us of the value, the supreme, unalterable, unchanging value of Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised on our behalf. What do you got worth living for? What's so important? Christ. Let's pray.